Good morning. My name is Chris McBride. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Chris McBride. I'm an elder here at LifeSpring, and it is my privilege to bring you God's word today. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for inviting us into fellowship with you. We thank you for your word and for a way to experience you through worship. And we invite your spirit to lead us today into all truth. Let us cling to what is true and get rid of what is false, that you may be glorified. Amen. Well, last week, if you were able to visit with us, either in person or online, you saw Cabot and I discussing some of these, or these very same verses. And we might have mentioned, I think we mentioned a few times, that we would be revisiting some of the topics that we talked about last week. So we'll be looking again today at 8, 1 through, Romans 8, 1 through 17. But this time there will be more of a focus on the later verses, verses 14 through 17. Now, as you might have guessed, if you noticed the title of today's message, the theme is belonging. The title is actually You Belong. And if you're like me, you may have had some questions pop into your mind, like to what do I belong or to whom? Romans 8 gives us a couple of answers. I'm not sure these are the only answers you could give to this question, but we're going to focus on the two we find here. One answer, unfortunately, is terrible news, but the other answer is great news. As you see throughout the passage, there seem to be two possibilities for us in life, two ways of existing in these physical bodies. In verses 5 and 6, Paul contrasts these two states of being. He says in verses 5, those who live according to the flesh And he compares that to those who live in accordance with the Holy Spirit. And then again you see in verse 6, those who have their minds governed by the flesh and those who have their minds governed by the Spirit. And as Paul draws these two distinctions, he elaborates on what life is like for each. Those who live according to the flesh can expect a life controlled by fleshly desires, animosity toward God and ultimately fear, and ultimately condemnation and death. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit can expect forgiveness and righteousness, peace with God, and adoption into his family. The dichotomy between these two could not be more distinct, could not be more frightening, and could not be more glorious for those who believe. The sermon series is actually called Life in the Spirit, and everything we read here in Romans 8 hinges on the Holy Spirit, because this passage is actually written to believers. It's written to those who have professed faith in Christ, who have put their trust in his saving work, and have acknowledged his lordship. And as Cabot helpfully explained last week, those who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And so all of the promises that we find in these passages is true of you if you are in Christ. The hard reality is, though, that if you're not in Christ, all the things that it says here about living in the flesh are true of you. Bad situation. Because everything that God longs to pour, including those who are in the flesh, no one needs to remain in the desperate situation apart from God. All are invited to experience the blessed reality that we find here in Romans 8. So if you're not sure where you stand, I guess what I'm asking you is to not check out. Please listen. Because these truths should call out to your soul. In, verse, in 2 Peter, P- 
Peter tells us God does not want any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. The truths you hear about Christ and the riches he bestowed, God offers to us all through his Son. Listen with an open heart to what God has for you. So what is the reality for those who live in Christ, as Paul tells us in Romans 8? This is where, if you like to take notes, these are your your guidelines. Um, If you belong to Christ, Romans 8 tells us that you have life. And if you belong to Christ, it tells us you have peace, peace with God. And if you belong to Christ, it tells you that you have sonship. You get to be a part of the family of God. In Christ you have life. In verses 1 and 2 of Romans 8, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you've been around church at all, you hear those verses all the time. They're full of amazing truth. Paul establishes in the first half of Romans, he spends the first seven chapters of Romans spelling out for us the desperate situation that man is in because of the sinful nature. In fact, if you look in chapter 1, at verses 28 to 32, they almost sound like a summary of a horror movie. This is where we are without Christ. In verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. That verse has always blown me away. People take time to invent ways to be evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they, knew, they know that God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Does that not sound like the hallmark of our times? Or maybe even the hallmark of the entire history of humanity? Not the entire history, right? We were created good and to be in good fellowship with God. I think for most of us, it's easy to see how these deeds listed in chapter 1 can provoke God's wrath. And I think most of us would agree that these types of deeds deserve harsh punishment. But what may be much harder and more difficult for us to accept is the fact that we are all guilty to some degree or another of these practices. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Unless we think that when we hear this list, somehow we are exempt or not capable of doing these things. The warning that Paul gives us here in chapter 8 is that we are. We are capable of these things if we live in the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh, this is 8 verse 5, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. And then in verse 6 he says, the mind governed by the flesh is death. We all have the sinful nature. We all have the capacity for heinous things. But in fact, Jesus explains, and in fact, Jesus explains that what takes place in the heart and the mind, not just our physical actions, but what we, how we think about people and how we feel toward people, those things are often equally deserving of condemnation. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. 
But the good news, the good news is that through Christ's sacrifice, the just, just punishment of death has been paid. And therefore, we are not under condemnation any longer. Those who are in Christ are set free from the law of sin and death. They are moved from deserving condemnation to forgiveness and freedom. Christ takes your sinful nature, or position, excuse me. Christ takes your sinful position. He takes your just punishment. And in, his play, in, your, and in place of that, he gives you his freedom. That truth is pretty astounding on its own, but there's even more. Okay? He doesn't simply set you free and leave you alone. It's not like, picture this. You're a convict who has just been set free from jail. You leave the final gate of the prison, and you go to the curb, and you find no one there. There's nobody there to pick you up. You look left, you look right, you look forward. Nobody's there for you. And you know that you're bound to fall back into the life that got you to prison in the first place. Well, God does not leave you there. He does not leave you alone. The picture we get from God is that he pulls up in an Escalade. He pops open the passenger door and waves you in. In fact, it's even better. Jesus gets out of the passenger side door, opens the back door, and beckons you in. Or even better, listen, it's even better. Jesus gets out, he walks into the prison, he opens your cell door, he embraces you, and he walks you out to the waiting Escalade. Yeah. Some of you might be thinking, okay, that's silly. It's too good to be true. Well, it is. It is too good in the sense where my daughter likes to say to me, Daddy, I love you too much. It is too good. But it's also true. This is what Christ does for you. And I know some of you are thinking, why an Escalade, <laughs> right? Maybe I watched too many rap videos when I was a kid in the 80s, but... That seemed to be the right of choice. I don't know. It's an amazing truth, and it's one that we should embrace and cherish. God does not leave us alone. He shows up, and he grants us life. Now, the life he grants us is actually comes in two distinct ways. It comes in the life in the body, and then it comes with eternal life with God. The life in this mortal body, in this life in this mortal body, God grants us fullness through Christ. Jesus actually tells his followers in John 10, it's, this is listed in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's talking about people who follow him. Have it to the full. In other translations, it says have it abundantly. So what is this fullness of life he's talking about? Well, in verse 5 of Romans 8, I'm sorry to bounce around so much, but this is so rich and deep. In verse 5 of Romans 8, Paul says that those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And then in verse 6, those, <clears throat> excuse me, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And one way I think we can understand what this fullness of life is that Christ promises is by fellowshipping with and submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Consider for a second what life is like when you have the full fruit of the Spirit. A life defined by love. A life filled with joy. A peaceful life. A life marked by patience and kindness 
gentleness and goodness toward ourselves and others, a life of faithful relationships and selflessness and self-control. That sounds like a pretty great life to me. Who wouldn't love a life like that? Well, since we know that the Spirit desires that we love God and love others, this is how we bring glory to Him, by living fruitfully in submission to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When we have our minds set on what the Spirit desires, we live a full life in these mortal bodies. And then we get to experience eternity with God. We get to rest in His loving presence forever. Well, suffice to say, the old body to die. As Paul declares in verse 10, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. We will experience eternity with God. If you are in Christ, you will. Now, if you belong to Christ, you also get peace. In verses 7 and 8, we hear more bad news. Okay? Bad news is good for one thing, illuminating the good news. In verse 7, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And then in verse 8, Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This is reiterating what he's been explaining in the first seven chapters. He reveals here, though, that our desperate situation, he reveals here again our desperate situation apart from Christ. But here's the wild thing. Sinful flesh does not just seek his own desires. The selfishness of sin is bad enough, and it leads to all kinds of problems for us. In fact, when we're in sin, we don't even want to please God. But it's even worse than that. Hard to believe, but it's worse. These verses tell us that the sinful nature is actively anti-God. In the flesh, we don't stop at simply ignoring God. We are hostile toward him. In chapter 5, verse 10, Paul actually tells us that we are enemies of God when we're in the flesh. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God because of sin. This word hostility, it suggests opposition, but not just opposition, active opposition, to do something with great ill will. We stand apart from Christ in a place where we oppose and despise the things that God desires. We don't just dismiss or ignore him, we actively fight against him. When you hear people say things like, yeah, your religion is good for you, but it's not good for me, that statement should ring hollow in light of this truth. Okay. The sinful nature makes us hostile, not just indifferent, not ignorant, hostile. And this is evident in the way many social issues are discussed today. We often see that when people take positions that are contrary to Scripture, they're not satisfied with simply disagreeing with God's commands. Now, as it says in chapter 1, verse 32, they not only continue to do the very thing, these very things, but they also approve of those who preach them or practice them, excuse me. And eventually, they feel compelled to attack, attack the church, attack God's truth, and then attack God himself. Critics of Christianity will claim that the God of the Bible is vain, spiteful, arbitrary in his wrath, and extreme in his judgments. I've heard all of these. I've read all of these. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world is not a miraculous, life-saving event, 
but is rather a barbaric and even perverse notion. This is what it'll tell you when you're in the flesh. The fleshly desire to want what we want without consequence or restriction is actually a distortion of the freedom that we seek. And it leads us to hostility toward our Creator. It leads us to think that accountability and judgment is actually discipline, just a loving parent. But the more that we indulge in the desires of the flesh, the farther we veer from the heart of God and the more hostile we become. But thanks be to God, right? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Through Christ, you are given or forgiven and no longer considered an enemy. And it's at this point that if God were to just leave us here, you might be considered to be in this sort of weird state of neutrality. When you think of nations and the way they interact with each other in the world, we often describe them as one of three things, allies, enemies, or neutral. But God does not allow us this option because for him, it's not good enough. We are no longer enemies of God, but for him, that's not enough. John F. Kennedy says, is, made, is claimed to have made this observation. The absence of war is not peace. So just because we are no longer enemies of God, once he forgives us, we are no longer enemies, does not mean that we are automatically at peace with him. Although in life we can coexist this way with many people, right? Uh, there are billions of people in the world, many we will never, obviously most, we will never meet. And we can get along with people, so to speak, in this weird position of neutrality. And in fact, this concept of live and let live is considered a virtuous motto these days. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and as long as we don't interfere with each other, we're all good. But by his mercy, his wisdom, his grace, God does not leave us with this indifferent and passive option. We are made to be in right relationship with our Creator, and we're made to be in right relationship with each other, a relationship of peace and of love. There is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to God. So what does he do for us? He moves us from a relationship of hostility, past from hostility, past this theoretical idea of neutrality, And he actually brings us to this position of peace. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the life we live in our mortal bodies becomes richer and fuller and truly meaningful as we begin to experience harmony with God. We're no longer about ourselves. We're about God and others. We're less and less in conflict with his ways for us as we come to cherish all the promises that he offers, all the fullness that he provides. Our desires begin to conform to his desires. We begin to want what he wants, to love what he loves, to concern ourselves with his concerns, and to seek to to please him in everything. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Those governed by the mind of the flesh do not want to please God. And that's what it tells us. But the opposite is true for those who are in Christ. With the help of the Spirit, we both grow in our desire to please him and have the power to do so. We go from being an enemy 
to a friend. It's pretty spectacular news. And then guess what? This is no surprise. He takes us even farther than that. You're starting to see this pattern. He takes us from this horrible place. He redeems us and gives us freedom. And then he takes us even farther. In Christ, you have sonship. God moves us from this place of enemy, this place of slavery to sin, to freedom, to sonship. This is what it says in verses 14 and 15. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. God takes us from enemies to friends. And then here Paul tells us that in a similar way, he moves us from this identity and trap of slavery to sin into his family. We're set free from not only the desires of the flesh, but also from fear. It says in this verse that we are no longer slaves to fear, so that we live, or sorry, no longer slaves so that we live in fear again. The Holy Spirit sets us free from that. Now, does the Holy Spirit set us free from all fear? I don't think so. I think some fear is good, right? Some fear can warn us to stay away from things that are harmful. But I think the fear he's talking about here is the fear that comes from a wrong relationship to God. What might that include? Fear of condemnation, fear of rejection, fear of uncertainty or the unknown. Well, we need not fear condemnation because Christ grants us his righteousness, and we need not fear rejection because the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit, we'll read later, that we are God's children, that God loves us. I think many of us can probably admit that one of the biggest fears in our lives, one of the things that we often fall under the control of is this fear of uncertainty, not being in control and not being able to determine what things are going to, how things are going to unfold in our lives. But we need not fear uncertainty because, as it says in verse 28, we know that, or I'm sorry, this is later in verse 828. We haven't read that today, but later in this chapter, Paul says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. The Spirit is proof of his promises to those he loves and proof that we can trust him. As the psalmist says in 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is, my, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Those are rhetorical questions. For those of you who are in Christ, the answer is nobody. And the answer is no thing. We need not fear anything. We can trust the one who loves us. And once we are no longer slaves, God takes it a step further still. Like it's grace upon grace upon grace. He makes us his children. Just as he doesn't leave us at the curb of the prison, neither does he leave us orphaned and alone. He takes us from slavery to freedom to family. Here's my obligatory sports analogy. I feel compelled for some reason to use sports. So even, listen, even if you don't like sports, hang with me for a second. I hope this will be helpful to you. A professional athlete signs a contract with a team. We're talking team sports here. And during that contract, they are obligated to that team. 
But once the end of that contracted period of obligation, once it's over, they are now called what they are now known as a free agent. It's called free agency. Free agents then have the opportunity or the freedom to choose whatever team they want to play for. And all the other teams in whatever league or whatever sport it might be now have, so to speak, permission to pursue that athlete. So if a team sees value in that athlete, they can go to that athlete and offer them a contract. But the inverse is also true. If all of the teams in a league look at an athlete who is now a free agent and don't see value, then the athlete is no longer a professional athlete. They're out of a job. And for many of them, if this happens before they're ready, it's quite traumatic. Their entire identity changes. The good news for us is that God doesn't set us free and leave us as free agents. He calls to us to not just be a part of his team, but to be a part of his family. That's an amazing truth. Our identity changes as well. We go from enemy to friend. We go from slave to child. He doesn't leave us to go back either to where we previously were, to be controlled again by the mind of the flesh, or to find ourselves obligated again to the sinful nature. If you want to use the sports analogy, we don't have to go back to the team we just left. God sees value in us, grants... Sorry, this is where all God... You've heard this before. It shows inter-daddy, right? It demonstrates closeness and familiarity, it demonstrates trust and confidence in his love. The Spirit testifies to our sonship by drawing us into this type of closeness and intimacy with God and gives us this confidence that we can lovingly call out to him as our dad, our loving father. And when we call out to him in this way, the Spirit testifies in that as well and affirms his love for us. And it's hard to believe that it can get better than that, but it does, it still does. Every step of the way, it gets better and better. We're not just children, but we are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with God's favorite son. Did you hear that? We're co-heirs with God's favorite son. I have two sisters and a brother, and every time we get together, it's inevitable the conversation leads at some point to an argument about who is my mom's favorite kid. My sisters say it's my brother. My, brothers, my brother says it's me. I say it should be me. <laughs> but it's really my brother. I think it's three to one. It's pretty, we're pretty convinced it's him. And parents, parents love to say, look, we love all our kids the same. There are no favorites. Okay. Whether that's true or not, we have to admit, Christ has a special place, right? He is God's only begotten. In 16 and 17, Paul tells us that the Spirit, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We are, not, we are adopted and not just made another child, although that's miraculous enough. But to give us status equal to his son, God is moving us to the position of most favored child. In the ancient world, the oldest son 
has full rights of inheritance to all of his father's holdings. Okay? The oldest son. And when I say all, I mean all. The oldest son inherits all. But what Paul tells us here is that God puts all of us in that place with Christ. God, Christ is his only begotten, and Christ is the one who inherits all. But by his amazing grace, God elevates us to be his co-heirs. We stand alongside Jesus in, the, in God's eyes. Or maybe it's better to say that Jesus stands alongside us and shares in his inheritance with us. God grants us Christ's righteousness. He grants us his position in the household. He looks at us like he looks at his beloved son with the same love, the same acceptance, the same favor, and with the same pleasure. Listen, I want you to ask yourself this honestly. Do you believe that when God looks at you, he looks at you with delight? Do you believe that when God looks at you, he is delighted? I can't, look, I'm not... This is not just an illustration. I, I don't see myself that way. I don't think of myself as a delightful person. But God does. And if you're in Christ, God looks at you that way too. He looks at you with delight. The closest I could possibly come with trying to understand what this is like is when I look at my kids. And you hear this from parents all the time. There's something amazing about it. God looks at you like that. He grants us, it's a great truth, I'm sorry, it's a great truth. He grants to us, as an inheritance, everything he grants to his son. If it is for Christ, it is for us. Okay, I think I stole that line from somebody, but it's a good one. If it is for Christ, it is for us. Now, if you're someone who grew up in a bad family, and maybe you don't know what it's like to experience this kind of love, you don't have an experience with a loving family, I'm here to tell you, and in Christ, you have one now, okay? In Christ, you are part of a loving family. You have a good father, and you have a good family. Lifespring is many things, but I think one thing we get right is that we love each other. And so I'm inviting you to come and join us. Be a part of this good family. It's important to mention here that when we use the term sonship, Okay, this includes women. The image of the firstborn son receiving an inheritance from the father is historical, it's helpful, but it's a little bit limiting if we don't understand that in Christ, all of his children receive this inheritance. All of us are co-heirs. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, you are all one in Christ. So don't get hung up on the phrase sonship. It's true for all who are in Christ. Okay? Now, but this begs the question, doesn't it? What do we inherit? Some of you are thinking that. I know you are. It's all right. What do we inherit? What do we get? All that has been mentioned and more. Forgiveness, freedom, right standing, life and peace, God's love and favor, family and sonship. There is promised suffering, if you notice that in verse 17. But just remember, when the suffering comes, you are not alone. If you belong to Christ, the Spirit gives you life, and you will share in God's glory forever. If you don't belong to Christ, 
<clears throat> he offers this to all of this to you as well. You're invited into life and peace. You're invited into the family of God. And I would say, come into it. Come into the family. He longs to call you child, and he longs to hear you respond with Abba, Father. Put your faith and trust in Christ and experience this life in the spirit that he offers. For those of us who do belong to Christ, what should we be doing? We should be enjoying the family, right? Enjoy the family. Believe that your father loves you. He has gone to great lengths to prove it to you. Rest in it. Rejoice in it. Let him pour it out on you. And then love him back, okay? Be in good fellowship with God. How do we do it? Surrender to the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. Let him lead you, let him guide you, and respond. And then, of course, the last thing is let's... Christ commands the entire life says it's his new... Can you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that your love is so deep and so rich. We're barely scratching, we're not even scratching the surface. There's so much here, so much more to know. And you offer it to us. We thank you for that. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who not only leads us into that truth, but also draws us into deeper fellowship with you. We don't deserve it. And yet you pour it out on us. Um, I don't know how to respond except to say thank you. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, just to ask you that you, you would just continue to hound their heart, continue to go after them until they respond to your love. Yeah, thank you for going to such great lengths to show, to prove it, and to pour it out. Amen.